Well, turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 1, and just a couple of reminders. We've spent the last couple of weeks introducing the book. We probably could have spent a lot more, just there's so many issues and, and complexities with the book. But one of the things I wanted to make certain to get across to all of us is that Song of Solomon is for everyone. It is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And just as a further reminder, you might ask, why would God devote a whole book of the Bible just to marriage? Well, marriage is the one picture that God gives us of the relationship between God and His people. It is also a picture of the relationship with God within the Trinity, God the Father to God the Son, God the Son to God the Spirit, God the Spirit to God the Father, and so forth. And so it really is so important for us as Christians to understand what the Bible says about marriage. If it's important to God, it's important to us. And I trust the Word. I trust that no matter the topic, it is a cleansing and sanctifying and uh, helpful experience for us to walk through this. And so... I hope you will savor this along with me. We're going to take uh, the rest of the fall and well into probably January, February to to finish this book. And we're going to just walk at a fairly uh, slow pace through this because it is poetry. It is the greatest of all the songs that Solomon ever wrote. And so we don't want to rush through it. Tonight we're going to consider chapter 1, just verses 1 through 6. And so follow along with me while I read that section. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. That's as far as we'll go tonight. Verse 1, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let's just get this uh, understanding here. The structure of this verse right here is very interesting. It is uh, what's called a superlative. It means that you have a singular song, then a plural of the same noun, songs. And what that means is that it is a superlative, which means it's something that is unmatched. It's the best. It's the highest. It's the utmost. It's unparalleled. 1 Kings 5.12 tells us that Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. We have three of them. We have the Song of Solomon, which is the song of all the songs. Then we also have Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. Now, I spent last week kind of attempting to explain the the chiastic structure, the literary structure of Song of Solomon. Psalm 72 has the same structure. Psalm 127 has the same structure. Also, Proverbs 1 through 9, written by Solomon as a unit, has the same structure. All of the book of Ecclesiastes written by Solomon, same structure. So in the question of whether song, the Song of Solomon was written by Solomon, uh, one scholar observed, quote, How likely is it that the striking similarity of all the above elegant literary structures is merely coincidental, exceedingly unlikely? And we'll stick to our guns here that this is one song. This is not a compilation. This is not a, a, a throwing together of different poems. This is all King Solomon's songs. It's his song of all of his songs. It's also important for us to say at the outset here, and I'll remind you of this through the coming weeks, that the approach we're taking to the Song of Solomon does have a light storyline to it. There is a narrative. There is a story that develops here. And here's the light storyline. We have the time before their wedding. We have the wedding and the wedding night. And then we have after the wedding. And I think that'll be very clear tonight but that's very important because a lot of scholars reject that view and quite frankly as a result in the first three chapters 
everything seems to be about the full act of sexual intimacy and it really ignores what we're going to talk about tonight, the the natural development of love, which is one of the key features of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is meant to help us understand how marital love is supposed to develop. And yes, this is a building love and certainly desire is expressed in the first three chapters, but these chapters really concern the development of love as well as obviously having tremendous applications and lessons for those who are already married. How do you apply the development of love to those who are married? It's never too late to keep developing. It's never too late to relight the fires that got you there in the first place. And in these opening verses, we have a soliloquy by Shulamith. And you remember we're using a proper name based on chapter 6, verse 13, in which she's called Shulamite. But there's a good cause to simply give her the proper name Shulamith. And I'd rather keep remembering that she is a real woman who really existed in real time. And in this soliloquy, she's expressing her desires for Solomon. And what we're going to see tonight is that this text really helps us answer the question, what should a godly young woman be wishing for? What should she be praying for in a husband? And by the way, it also tells us what can a husband know about his wife or a man know about his potential or future wife. And so it helps us understand that. Uh, just for a little statistic for you, 53% of Song of Solomon is said to be spoken by the woman, 39% spoken by the man, and the rest spoken by other people. And so this is primarily the view of God, God's view of marriage through the eyes of a woman. And so it gives us great insight. So Song of Solomon gives us insight into the proper heart of a young woman. And that's what I'd like to focus on tonight. I'd like to highlight the the right and godly wishes of a young woman. And we'll do six of them. And tonight I'm going to kind of sprinkle our applications throughout our time together rather than all at the end because we have a lot of ground to cover. And so we'll do that as we go. The right and godly wishes of a young woman, six of them. Here's the first wish of the young woman. To love a man she knows well. To love a man that she knows well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I begin reading Song of Solomon, it seems to start fairly uncomfortably, doesn't it? It it doesn't start with, let me hold his hand. I mean, right away we have the, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, and we all kind of start blushing. We're just diving right in. It's like, boy, there's no introduction or anything. Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then, bammo, we're right there. And in fact, in verse 2, for your love is better than wine can legitimately be translated your caresses or your touch is better than wine. And now we're just, just can't even make eye contact with one another at this point. Why is it that all of a sudden Shulamith is just gaga for Solomon right off the bat? Well, let's find out what we can about Shulamith. There isn't a lot, but we do have some clues. What do we know about Shulamith? First and most important, she has previously known the king. She knows Solomon. Let me give you the evidence for this. Verse 4, he says, The king has brought me into his chambers. Chambers doesn't have to mean bedroom. One of the reasons that we uh, would say that this is a before the wedding, then later we'll have wedding and wedding night, and then there's after the wedding, is that there's evidence that they knew each other. Chambers doesn't have to mean bedroom. It just means his house. And in fact, her family had known Solomon and likely King David's family for quite some time. Shulamith's family were tenant farmers and they leased a large vineyard. And guess who owned the large vineyard? Solomon did. Even as a boy, obviously as a, as a prince, he was given a vineyard and certainly other property But chapter 8, verse 11 says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. This is the vineyard that she worked so hard in to the point of burning her skin, as we see here in verses 5 and 6. And so she and Solomon had known each other for a long time. And just to go back to the note about the structure of Song of Solomon and the overall structure of the book, the chiastic structure I explained last week. Verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers, corresponds to the similar section of chapter 8, verses 5 through 14, the very end of the book. So turn with me for a moment to chapter 8. How long had these families known one another? 
How long did, were they familiar with each other? Chapter 8, verse 5. And your Bible probably divides. There's probably a space after the word beloved, a poetic space because there's a new topic. The second half of verse 5. This is Shulamith speaking. Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. This is Shulamith speaking and she's referencing a specific tree that Solomon's mother Bathsheba had apparently been sitting under when she went into labor with Solomon. As a matter of fact, it gets even more personal than that. The, the phrase for in labor can equally be translated conceived under the apple tree. And we'll leave it right there that maybe David and Bathsheba had a time together at that apple tree. In any case, it doesn't make any difference. There is a rich family history, so rich that Shulamith knows about this apple tree that was special to Bathsheba, to Solomon's mother. The parents of Solomon and Shulamith had known each other since before either of them were born. Perhaps they had grown up together with Solomon coming out to his vineyard even as a child. And, and we all know this instinctively. Children are not nearly as stunted by social divisions and societal classes. Kids are kids and they likely played together as well. Kids don't know who the rich kids are and who the poor kids are. They just play together. Go back a bit to chapter 6 verse 9. Solomon is speaking, and he clearly knows Shulamith's mother. Chapter 6, verse 9, My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. He knows the relationship that Shulamith has with her own mother. Go back to chapter 3, verse 4. She was comfortable enough with Solomon that he had been in her home as well, which was almost unheard of in this culture. Chapter 3, verse 4, Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. The point is, is that the love that developed between Shulamith and Solomon was a love that developed over time. By knowing one another. This wasn't an infatuation based on lust or on a mere youthful attractiveness. And, and certainly it wasn't a teenage, I really like him, sort of a crush. No, this is love that had been an ember for years and years. that is now blown into a flame. And just by way of application for all of us matchmakers in the crowd here. I think it's important that we beware of trying to match up young people for such surface reasons as they would make a cute couple or wouldn't it be fun if they got together or worse, doing so because it makes you feel good. That's not good. Instead, this is love based on time spent together, not mere attraction, not a whim or desperation, but time. Uh, Sometimes we use a, a, a word, and it's just a cultural word, but we use a word that we would call courtship. And the whole idea of courtship is that of taking a long period of time to get to know one another, to understand each other, to have your families know one another. That is a much more biblical model. There's no biblical model for going out on a few dates with your families completely devoid of any sort of relationship and then uh, simply deciding you're going to get married because you're infatuated with one another. There's no biblical model for that. And for the married couple... I would remind us all, don't let the fact that you've known each other for so long make your marriage routine. Do you really know every single thing about your spouse? I doubt it. It's it's still good to talk, to ask questions of one another. Instead of telling the other person what you think they're thinking, ask them. Learn new things. Listen, we're all growing. We're all changing, hopefully becoming more like Christ. There should be new things to talk about. What is the Lord doing in your life personally? What are your victories now? What are your fears now? What's your main focus at this particular stage in your life? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What interest can I show in what is interesting to the other person? How can I develop that? Don't just exist together. Don't just say, well, we've made it this far. We'll just kind of coast to the end. No, don't do that. Do things together that engender conversation. And I know, especially guys, you might think, well, I've settled into a nice routine. I only have to say like nine words a day to my wife. No, 
Learn not to do that. Learn to talk and to listen and to have new conversation. Go somewhere else. Go away. Go for a drive. Go for a walk. Change it up. You can be like Solomon and Shulamith now. It doesn't matter how long you've been married. I've seen couples married for five years that have already settled in and they're already acting like they're 108 years old and they're just done. And I've also seen couples married for five decades who are still enamored by each other. You know why? Because they keep learning. They keep growing together. They keep talking. The process of knowing one another should never really be stopped. Don't let the McDonald's switch flip. You know what the McDonald's switch is? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. The McDonald's switch is what gets flipped on when an older couple goes and sits in McDonald's and drinks coffee and just stares it out the window and they don't say a word and then they look at their watches and then they shuffle out and leave. What a glorious opportunity was missed to sit across from the most important person in the world to you and to talk. There's a second wish of the young woman. Her second wish is to be loved overwhelmingly. To be loved overwhelmingly. Shulamith's soliloquy begins in verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now you notice that while she desires to kiss the king, her wish is that he would initiate, that he would take the lead. She's now experiencing the natural effect of having known Solomon for a long time, the natural outcome of having spent time together for a number of years, even as children. It's important to translate this. I'm sorry, it's appropriate to translate this uh, because of the intensive nature of both the verb and the noun form of kiss. It is appropriate to say, let him smother me with kisses. That's what she wants now. It's proof of his love. What is she hoping for? She's hoping for corresponding feelings on Solomon's part. That's what she's asking for. And who is she asking? This is very important because there's been a, a question often brought up, why does there seem to be no spiritual emphasis in Song of Solomon at all? First of all, I would say that marriage is a very spiritual emphasis because God commands it and he's given us a way to have marriage. But that's not true. Shulamith is a Jew living in the vicinity of Jerusalem and we can assume that she has a genuine faith in Yahweh for a couple of reasons. First of all, she is the female hero of this story and God is not going to make an unbeliever the example of how love is to be appropriated in marriage. And the second reason is that this phrase right here, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, this is more than an internal wish. This is, in Hebrew, a prayer formula. She's asking. Who is she asking? She's speaking to someone other than Solomon, because in the second half of verse 2, she's speaking to him, although he doesn't hear her words. She's speaking sort of from a distance. But here, she's praying for a reciprocal yearning on his part. She's praying to God to give, her, to give to Solomon the same desire for her that she has for him. What a great lesson that the beginning of romance starts in prayer. It starts going to God and asking God to affect his work. Now, if it seems unusual in the Bible to see a reference to a kiss in a romantic setting, you would actually be quite correct. Almost all the references to a kiss in the Old Testament and in the Bible as a whole speak of a kiss of friendship. This is an ancient Near Eastern way of expressing kinship or affection between friends, brothers and sisters in the New Testament, between believers in the church. But here, Shulamith makes certain we know this is not a kiss of friendship at all. She uses a phrase that almost makes us blush, let him smother me with kisses. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. But what's important here is she has opened her heart. She has opened herself emotionally to Solomon and now she wishes for that very first expression of love. This represents the beginning point, the intimate interaction of actually bringing the faces of two people together. The face represents the person as made in the image of God. It is an act of sharing your image with another. It is a very personal act. She goes on to give a reason for her desire for Solomon. For your love is better than wine. That's just the taste of the kiss, I guess you could say. 
Now, the question is, is she speaking of the emotional feeling of love or the perception that she has that a kiss with Solomon would be something even more intoxicating than wine? Well, given the already growing desire she's expressing, it's reasonable to conclude that the affection and the fondness that she has for Solomon is now blurred and mixed with her belief that the expression of their love would be better than wine. This is very important. Because the ambiguous nature here of love reminds us that love and the physical expression of love go together. They're not separate. Intimacy without love is outside the bounds that God has created. The two are one, yet the one are two. This is so important. The love of her heart has preceded the expression of love at any level. They're not touching one another. They're not together. They're not engaging in any sort of physical expression. The love of the heart has preceded the expression of love. They're not yet married, and yet she has a desire for him. But this desire is kept, and she keeps herself pure. And we know, especially in our culture today, as as love intensifies, it's very easy to express that love before marriage. Instead, the standard is much different. That yearning and longing is meant to drive the young man and the woman toward marriage. That's what it's supposed to do. Her desire here is not just to find a mutual partner in life, but someone who will love her overwhelmingly. Someone who will esteem her and cherish her and bond to her in the sacred, mysterious way that's described in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. It's a mysterious bond. And her desire is not just merely to have a provider. Her desire is not merely to just have a, a man around for protection. Her desire is to be loved overwhelmingly. There's a third wish of the young woman. We'll call this one to love a worthy man. To love a worthy man. You don't have to turn there. But listen to Proverbs 6, which is Solomon's description of a loser. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6. Here's the loser. That's not in the Bible. That's my part. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. This is a man who has no character. He is a bottom feeder. He is just nothing. He's never done anything great. He's never done anything difficult. He's never accomplished anything He has a terrible work ethic. He tries to do everything as a shortcut because he's lazy. He has a terrible reputation with everyone he knows. Every bridge behind him is on fire and every bridge in front of him is a fire waiting to happen. But Shulamith has a different desire. She has set her her, her sights very high. Verse three, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Now she's referenced the taste of Solomon's love better than wine. And she knows his smell as well. Anointing oils. This would refer to aromatic oil, which especially a wealthy man would have. But she quickly turns to something much more important. Yes, His kisses would taste better than the intoxication of wine. And yes, his smell is pleasant, most likely because she's used to it over the years of getting to know one another. But most importantly, she says, your name is oil poured out. His character, his reputation were to her like expensive oil, not dabbed onto the body conservatively as they would do, but poured out all over the place. This reminds us of the pouring out of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, uh, anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive oil. It's lavish. What is it that has been the greater cause of love? Is it just that he has nice kisses? 
She hasn't been kissed by him yet. It's her imagination at this point. She's imagining that his kisses are nice, but is that the cause of love? Is that the cause of love? No. She's seen him develop over time. She's seen him grow up. She's seen how he interacts with people. She knows him well enough to know that his character and his goodness are known to others, even as a boy and as a young man. Listen, for young ladies, one way to... to, uh, cut through the baloney really fast is not just to get to know a young man get to know 10 other people who know the young man go ask them what is this guy like tell me the truth how many foolish young people have married against the warnings and advice of people who have known the spouse a lot longer how much heartache could be avoided if that advice was heeded better to be single for a lifetime than to discover more and more layers of a man's reputation as being lazy or harsh or difficult. So for the lesson for the young ladies, don't marry a loser. Concerning Solomon, the chorus here, the daughters of Jerusalem, Shulamith's young friends, they sound off concerning Solomon's reputation. Second half of verse 4, where in your Bible it may say others, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. The masculine singular pronouns here, you, indicate that they're speaking to and of Solomon. We will exalt and rejoice in you, Solomon. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you, Solomon. There's an interesting phrase. Rightly do they love you. Apparently, more than one young woman is interested in Solomon. From later descriptions of Solomon, we'll find out that he is handsome. He is, of course, wealthy. He's powerful and soon would be the most powerful man in the world. And yet Shulamith and Solomon are cultivating their love at an early age. Here's a little lesson to take from this. For a young married couple, if, if possible, move up in the world together. I've often told young ladies, don't be afraid to marry a poor man who has character. Move together through life. Make your journey through life together. On the other hand, a man who has many things but no character is worthless. But a man with a few things but, but character is worthy. And the same goes the other way for women as well. Move through life together. I know after you've been married for a long time, you can sort of, especially us guys, you can sort of have this bag of tricks you go to. Here's the five phrases I'm going to say that I think makes my wife feel good so that I can move on with whatever I want to do. But could I ask you this? Have you praised the character and the outstanding traits of your spouse lately and told one another face to face, here's five things I love about you and here's, here's a new one I haven't talked about in a while. Don't just say, well, she knows what I think. She might, but she'd like to hear it as well. And ladies, don't spend your whole lives trying to remake your husband into your image. It's never going to happen. He'll be on his deathbed going, well, I almost made it. Nope. It's not going to happen. Praise him for how God has made him and focus on his character now. See the best in him. Remember why you married him. Think on those things. See also 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes the best. There's a fourth wish of the young lady, and that is to love at the right time. To love at the right time. The beginning of verse 4. She says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Draw me after you. Let us run. She desires for him to come to her and to run away somewhere with her. And some take this uh, very metaphorically. Draw me after you. Let us run. I think she just meant she wants to run away somewhere with him. She wants to be alone with him. And in a culture where that's almost impossible, of course that's her desire. But her desire stops short of sin. I I resent those who immediately begin putting Shulamith and Solomon in the position of being immoral. Shulamith has been raised in a strict upbringing of chastity and purity before marriage. Several times in this song, Shulamith herself warns her young friends, do not awaken desire before it's time. And we're going to see that as a theme as we walk through this book. When is it time to awaken desire? Very simply, when you can be married. That's when you awaken desire. That's why the concept of 14-year-olds dating one another is idiotic and is dangerous. In chapters 
chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, we get a description of the brothers of a little sister saying that if she was a door that might be open, they're going to board the door up and make it impossible to get to her. In the next verse in chapter 8, Shulamith describes herself as a wall and that the sexual parts of herself are like towers guarding a fortress. Listen to Solomon's description of her on their wedding night. Solomon, Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12. You just listen. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Nobody had ever gotten to her, including Solomon. So what do we make then of Shulamith's statement, the king has brought me into his chambers? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, it can just be speaking of Solomon's private quarters. It doesn't have to mean a bedroom. It just means rooms. It also could be her wish for the future that she is looking forward to being married. But the construction of the verb that he has brought is a perfect verb. And that suggests to us that she has been there already repeatedly. And as childhood friends, that would make sense. But what it cannot be is even a suggestion of premarital intimacy. That is not happening. There is a clear desire, and yet she's a wall. She's a tower. She's a locked garden. She's a sealed fountain until Solomon marries her. And I know we all know this, but it bears repeating. You can only give yourself away for the first time once. And the intimacy designed by God to create a bond in the context of marriage gets tainted and even harmed badly when God's admonitions concerning sexuality and the confines of marriage are ignored. I've lost track of the number of marital counseling sessions I've done where there's major problems in the marriage and eventually I'll ask the question, what happened before you were married? And inevitably this leads to problems. The Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, I know that we live in the world that two virgins getting married is now the exception, not the rule. But for the one who's already sinned in this matter, there's, there's full forgiveness at the cross. There's full restoration. There's full healing, full coming back to purity. But to all the young people hearing this, what are you to do? You're to be a wall, be a tower, be a locked garden, a sealed fountain, a boarded up door. And when God brings the right person in his timing, then and only then does the wall come down, the tower is unlocked, the garden gate is unlatched, the fountain can flow and the door can open. And what's your ultimate motivation? Ultimate motivation isn't to, isn't to think about pragmatic reasons to wait or to think about uh, the consequences of not waiting. Your ultimate motivation is simply love for Christ. If you love Christ, then you not only delay expression of love before marriage, but you engage and delight in it after marriage. It's the same. Love at the right time. Here's a fifth wish of the young lady, and that is to receive unconditional love. To receive unconditional love. Verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She's making a defense of her appearance. And this may be in contrast to the appearance of her young friends who live in Jerusalem and who maybe aren't outside as much as she is. She's basically describing an extremely dark tan. Now we know from chapter 4 verse 8 that her original heritage is from Lebanon. So this isn't a statement that she is a black-skinned woman. She's been sunburnt for a long time. She says she's like the tents of Kedar. This was uh, the, the, the Kedar people, an Arab nomadic tribe descended from one of the sons of Ishmael. Genesis 25 tells us this. And they were known for making their tents of the darkly tanned goat skins. They were black tents. But she says also, and she's like the curtains of Solomon. Curtains hung in his chambers. He didn't have a palace yet, but, he had, uh, but the royal family, King David and his family, would have had some sort of temporary quarters that were nice. By the way, that's proof that she's been there. She knows what color the curtains are in Solomon's house. And so she seems to be self-conscious, and yet at the same time, she's confident. She's dark, but lovely. This kind of two sides almost at odds with one another. And the word picture she gives us tells us those two opposite sides. I am dark, like a nasty old tent out in the desert, but lovely, 
like the curtains of Solomon. There's a tension here. She's concerned and yet she's expressing confidence in herself. She's not trying to get attention by constant self-deprecation. She's concerned that she doesn't measure up to the standard of a fair princess. And yet she's not a withering flower at all. She knows who she is. And so she says in verse 6, Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept, meaning her body she has not kept. In contrast to her young friends who don't work out in the fields, apparently, she's extremely burnt by the sun because of working every day in the vineyards while growing up. What did it mean in that culture to be dark-skinned? It meant you were ordinary. It meant that you worked outside a lot, that you were a common field worker. You certainly weren't a princess in the king's court. But as Song of Solomon continues, we see that she is, in fact, beautiful and Certainly Solomon himself doesn't look with those shallow worldly eyes at her, but instead he appreciates her just for who she is. And why was she working in the vineyards? She says, my mother's sons were angry with me. You notice that she uses a distant term. She doesn't say my brothers. She says, my mother's sons. And there's a word play here in Hebrew. That she, the, she says, because the son has looked upon me, literally has burnt me, because my brother's anger burned against me. And so there's sort of a poetic wordplay here, but why would her brothers, ostensibly her older brothers, express anger toward her by making her work in the fields so hard every day? I think the best solution to that question is that she took as anger what was really just a cultural protection of her. Turn over to chapter 8 again with me. Chapter 8. Verse 8, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken of? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. What were they doing? Were they just mad at her? No. It's most likely it was an attempt to keep their beautiful young sister away from boys so that she would maintain her sexual purity. And they were successful. Verse 10 says that Shulamith calls herself a wall that no one can get around. And what was the result of working in the fields every day? Shulamith has not been able to focus on keeping her own appearance soft and feminine. But she is pure, which is of much more value. There's a second result, by the way, sort of a side note. Shulamith has something that is of tremendous value, an ability to work hard. She wasn't going to become a trophy wife. She was one who was a worker. She gives her love to her husband and her labor to the family. As a matter of fact, she fits the mold of the Proverbs 31 woman given to Solomon by his mother Bathsheba. Proverbs 31.15, She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maiden. Shul- maidens, Shulamith could do this. I used to get up before dawn every day. Proverbs 31, 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. How would she know how to plant a vineyard? She worked on in one her whole growing up years. Proverbs 31, 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Proverbs 31, 18, her lamp does not go out at night, meaning that she makes certain there's oil in the lamp. She's a hard worker. She takes care of her home. All through Song of Solomon, just a little... Note here, Solomon's mother and Shulamith's mother are mentioned. There's no mention of their fathers at all. It's very likely that Shulamith's father was dead. She was clearly the young sister of many brothers, and they're the ones working to protect her, and she's the only girl in the family. She's the only sister. She is bringing up the rear as the one jewel in the family after all these boys Chapter 9, verse 6, again, she is the only one of her mother, pure to her, who bore her. But overall, verses 5 and 6, is most certainly somewhat of a question from Shulamith to Solomon. Here's the question. She says, I am dark but lovely. She says in verse 6, do not gaze at me because I am dark. The question she's asking is, will you love me unconditionally? 
Will you love me unconditionally? Or am I going to spend my life trying to be more, trying to earn your love? Will I be okay for who I am? Will you adore me for me? And while we don't want to spoil the next message, look what Solomon calls his sunburnt country girl. Chapter 1, verse 8. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women. That's what he calls her. There's the final wish of a young lady. To be his most important person. To be his most important person. Danger is coming down the road. We get a hint of trouble at the end of verse 3. Therefore, virgins love you. The end of verse 4. Rightly do they love you. Meaning that the young women, younger girls yet to be fully mature physically, who are friends with Shulamith, her friends all agree that Solomon is a catch. There is, of course, an implied concern here. If Solomon is that attractive to so many women, will he be able to devote his life to only one? We need to acknowledge the reality of what was happening in Solomon's life and what was happening culturally. I want to take some time on this. God's standard for marriage has always been one man married to one woman. Historically in Scripture, some of the main characters in Scripture have violated this standard and we have to understand that this violation was fairly well accepted and it was often for reasons that weren't romantic at all. 1 Samuel chapter 1, Elkanah of 1 Samuel 1 had two wives, Penina and Hannah. He loved Hannah, but not so much Penina. Most likely his marriage to Penina was simply because Hannah couldn't have children. And in a culture where children were your, were your heritage, children were everything. They were how you, you made your way in the world. It was important. Jacob had two wives. One he loved more than the other because of his father-in-law's trickery to get him to marry both of his daughters. And additionally, he had children with his wives' maidservants as well. And I know this blows our brain fuses. We don't grasp that. King David himself, he had eight wives for varying reasons. For example, Abigail was one of his wives that he rescued from a terrible situation. And as a king, marrying in order to form alliances with surrounding peoples was a very common occurrence. The thought was that that's the easiest way to preserve peace because now there's a family connection. One of the great issues with Song of Solomon being written by Solomon is the fact that Solomon was surrounded by women. How could he possibly be the author of the greatest love poem of all time when he himself was beset by such difficulties in the realm of his own love life? I'd like to take some time on his life and show you a few things. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings 1. We want to look at Solomon's life overall. When we get to 1 Kings chapter 1, Solomon's father, King David, is old and basically bedridden. He couldn't stay warm. And so his servants hire the young woman named Abishag to keep David warm. I know this is very strange to us in our time, but it didn't seem to be to them. And verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us there was no intimacy at all between them. Abishag is going to become important later. Now at this time, David's fourth son, Adonijah, set himself up as king. Solomon is probably 17 years old right about now. And if Adonijah becomes king, then Solomon's life is in danger. Look with me at 1 Kings 1, verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. Now, what's happening here? Adonijah had been spoiled. Verse 6, his father had never at any time displeased him. David spoiled him. He never disciplined. He was never disciplined by his father. Adonijah got one priest. He got a leader of the military to go along with him for his bid for the throne. But Nathan the prophet and other key men loyal to David weren't with him. So Nathan the prophet goes to Solomon's mother Bathsheba and and he informs him of what was happening. Why to Bathsheba? 
Well, because David had already promised her that their son Solomon would be king after David. And so Bathsheba sprang into action. She went to David and she told him what was happening and rightly warned that if Adonijah is confirmed as king, then both she and Solomon would likely be executed. Verse 21 tells us that they would be counted as criminals. Well, David may have been bedridden, but he was still a mighty leader when he needed to be. And after Nathan the prophet had also spoken to David, David took charge. Look at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 28. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. 974 B.C. Solomon became co-regent with King David when he's 17, maybe 18 years old, with David still very influential. Adonijah, he feared for his life. He ran to the tabernacle. There's no temple yet. He grabbed the altar and he wouldn't let go until, until Solomon promised mercy. Well, Solomon made no promises. He made one condition. Look at the very end of 1 Kings 1. Verse 52, and Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. What is he doing? He puts Adonijah under house arrest, basically. Immediately on day one, Solomon is having to deal with intrigue and tension. He's 17, maybe 18 years old. Right at this point, I want you to put a mental bookmark in your brain. I want you to mark this moment. 974 BC, Solomon has just become co-regent with David. He's 17 or 18 years old. We're going to return to this point. Put that bookmark in your mind. Because now, five major changes take place in Solomon's life. Huge adjustments, massive events, one after another after another. The first major change, King David did what any king in the situation would do in the last years of his life. And with a young son on the throne, he got Solomon a wife. And it was a political alliance wife. Her name was Naamah. First Kings 14 tells us this. And she was an Ammonite. She was an Ammonite princess, most likely. And this marriage would immediately start the process of providing an heir for Solomon and would bring peace with a neighboring people. So Naamah then would become the mother of Solomon's firstborn son, Rehoboam. The second major change. At age 70, after 40 years of rule, David, Solomon's beloved father, died. And Solomon now became the sole king of Israel at about the age of 20 or 21. Look with me at 1 Kings 2. Verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. 
And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Third major change that happened. Remember Adonijah, his older brother, still under house of rest. Kind of a friendly arrangement. Well, now Adonijah, now that their father is dead, he attempts treachery to regain the throne of Israel. Remember Abishag, the young woman who David's servants hired to keep David warm, to share his bed, although without any physical relations. Well, Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and he pretends to come peacefully. And basically, he kind of whines and complains. And he says, the whole kingdom was going to be mine before Solomon took it away. I just have one request. Ask Solomon to give me Abishag as my wife. So Bathsheba went to Solomon and made the request. But remember, as far as anybody who knew about Abishag was concerned, she had been the final wife or concubine of King David, although chapter 1 makes it clear that wasn't the case. But if Adonijah marries Abishag, he is, in the eyes of the public, marrying the final queen of Israel. And what do you call the man who marries the queen? You call him the king. Well, Solomon saw right through it. 1 Kings 2, verse 22, he's speaking to his mother. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Maniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Fourth big event. About three years after David died, Solomon needed to make certain that one of the biggest powers in the region was peaceful with him and his relatively small kingdom, so he did what his father taught him. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, Walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So Solomon, generally speaking, is following after the Lord. He's following after the Lord. He's taking this new wife, a political alliance, and now we get to a fifth major event in just a few short years. God appears to him in a dream. And he gave the greatest offer in all of the Bible with the exception of salvation in Christ Jesus. And that is in, uh, in verse 5. He simply said to Solomon, Ask what I shall give you. There's no asterisk. There's no condition. Just ask what I shall give you. And in one of the most humble and contrite and self-effacing answers of all time, look with me at verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 3. Verse 6, and Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in, go out, or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And oh, how this pleased the Lord. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. 
so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And now after these five major events, God just begins to pour blessings out on Solomon. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 19, lists the major officials in his government. And God made Solomon's reign really and truly the only golden years of Israel. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. Here are the golden years of Israel. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life for the only time in all of history, before or after, the borders of Israel that God promised to Abraham are actually happening from the Euphrates all the way to Egypt. Listen to this phenomenal time for Solomon in Israel. Chapter 4, verse 22 Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. And it just goes on and on to say all of the massive wealth and riches that Solomon received. 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen, provision left and right. Nothing was lacking. Verse 32 He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Wow. One year after marrying the Egyptian, Solomon began construction on the temple of God, the glorious place where God would meet with his people. He took seven years to build it. Then Solomon built his palace. He took 13 years to build that, 1 Kings 7. Solomon's wealth is now almost unimaginable. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 14. This is just one example of his wealth. Chapter 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Today's money, $999 million. Just a couple bucks shy of a billion. Verses 15 through 22. Solomon made shields out of gold, an ivory throne for himself. And not just because of the ivory, he overlaid the ivory with gold. 14 golden lions, two at the armrests and 12 on either side of six golden steps leading up to the throne. Verse 20 says, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. Even his drinking glasses were gold. And the chapter notes that silver was like junk at this point. 1 Kings 10.23, Thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. How much he had. We've already seen that Solomon made two marriage alliances with the Ammonites and the Egyptians, but as the wealthiest man on earth, as the most powerful man on earth, and as the wisest man on earth, what else is going to follow? Hordes of women. And Solomon did not do well. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father. Verse 8, And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Solomon, the benefactor of the Davidic covenant, could not keep himself from following women. 
He couldn't get enough. And they led him down the path of idolatry. Fast forward to the end of Solomon's life. He has literally had every single pleasure that the world can offer. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, right before Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes is the wisdom offered by Solomon after a lifetime of pursuing every pleasure to be found on the earth. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few few days of their life. And so he gives this long list of all the pleasures, all the wealth, all the self-indulgence he could possibly imagine. No man before or since has ever had as much as Solomon did. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And the rest of Ecclesiastes is basically the story of Solomon learning what is really important in life. Turn to the end of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12. He comes to the singular conclusion that there's only one thing that ultimately matters. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. And so what did Solomon spend the last years of his life, the very last years, the very end? Look back a couple of verses. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He spent his final years writing after 700 wives, 300 concubines, after having been essentially desensitized to the real pleasure of marital love. It was likely at this point of reflection and looking back that Solomon returned to his mind and his heart and began to write of his one true love. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. You remember I told you the mentally bookmark 974 BC when Solomon is 17, 18 years old. When he became the co-regent with his father David and was placed in an arranged marriage with Naamah the Ammonite, that's when the romance between Solomon and Shulamith takes place. The one he had grown up with. The romance and marriage likely took place between about 974 to 972. And it would have been concurrent. It would have been at the same time as the arranged political marriage with Naamah. And so Solomon is in this great struggle. The marriage of necessity and expectation with Naamah. And the love of his life. The heart of his heart. The girl he had grown up with. Shulamith. Just a farm worker, just a country girl, but his one true love. So much of Song of Solomon takes place in the countryside or in the forests. Solomon and Shulamith off together, getting away from the pressures and the forced romances of life, not only as a king, but one who would soon be the most sought-after man in the world. And you can hear the shades of Shulamith's concern. Chapter 2, verse 15 She says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. There's very good reason to believe that the little foxes are the many other women surrounding Solomon and the threat to the budding romance of Solomon and Shulamith. Could it be that Song of Solomon not only represents the highest ideals of marital love as given by God, but also a reflective poem on Solomon's own failure to keep his eyes on one woman, the true love of his life. Very, very likely. Can you imagine 
how great a king he would have been if he had gone through the next 40 years married to one woman. For us as men, your wife desires your total devotion. She's a gift. Devote yourself to your one true love. And how do you do that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Send her the message every day that she is the most important person on planet Earth. There's eight billion others, but you surpass them all. Well, already we're beginning to see that marriage is intended by God to be a picture of redeemed mankind in right relationship with the Lord through the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross to make reconciliation with God. Marriage is intended to display our relationship as God is related to us. The unconditional love, the devotedness to one another, the intense longing for the other pushes us and it ought to push us to the greater unconditional love of God through Christ the greater devotion that God has toward us who are His and the longing that salvation creates in us to know our God, to follow in His ways. So not only is this a lesson for the wishes of a young woman that are godly and that are good, but it pushes us to look heavenward and to look to our God who has loved us perfectly even as Solomon was unable to love Shulamith perfectly. God is the solution to the problem of human sin. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these brief six verses which are so instructive to us. I pray, Lord, that they are a blessing to all who hear, that you would drive the nails of these truths deeply into our hearts so that we would be better followers of you in the home and in every area of life. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.